Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octo non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. As the CEO of Elevate Addiction Services, the only drug rehab in the country that has a CrossFit gym, Angie Manson is passionate about health and fitness. She's the host of the Elevate Experience podcast and the recent recipient of the Forbes Riley Outstanding Humanitarian Award. With Angie's leadership, Elevate was nominated for and won the Excellence in Treatment Gold Award from Conquer Addiction. Angie was also a contributor to the international number one bestseller, One Habit for Entrepreneurial Success, and has 27 years in recovery. But that's only half of her story. You see, before she became the CEO of Elevate Addiction Services, she came from low-income housing, and Angie Manson started using drugs and alcohol at the tender age of 11 years old. And we're going to talk about all this of her story and more over the course of the interview Angie, thank you so much for being here. It's been a long time coming. And I met you through the RTA Syndicate. And when you told me what you did, and then you also told me your philosophy about what addiction is and what it is not, that really stuck out for me because I felt the same way, but I thought that within the circles of the confines of addiction that everybody looked at it as this disease. But how do you look at it? I don't look at it as a disease because when I think of a disease, I think of something that sort of happens to you. I mean, you could be a smoker and got cancer, but I feel like looking at it, at it as a disease puts you the victim of something happening to you. And so our goal is to empower individuals to overcome their addiction and not be the victim of this the rest of their lives. It's all about empowerment and accountability. You also have to take responsibility for having created this addiction. It didn't just happen to you. Very few. I mean, there are the occasional, very few babies that are born addicted to crack or heroin or these sorts of things. But for the most part, the 99% of us, we created this. So it is our responsibility to fix this as well. Yeah, I love that because we made the decision to get us into it. So that means that we can still take that responsibility to take action and get out of it. Because how many people do we know that play the victim and they just throw their hands up in the air and they say, oh, I can't do anything about this. It's out of my hands. And that bleeds over into everything else that they do in their life between the relationships, their food, their working out. And you have all these incredible modalities that are very empowerment-based with Elevate. Again, the CrossFit gym, come on, that's huge. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and we're not denying there's trauma. Like one for one, every single addict has in common is some sort of trauma. I would say every single human being has some sort of trauma. So we're not saying that There hasn't been horrific things done, but what we are saying is you can overcome them. And yes, we use the CrossFit gym as a means of empowerment because so many people have a false belief that they can't 
physically overcome the addiction mentally or anything like that. And CrossFit helps you shift that mindset to realize that you are powerful. You can overcome. You can create these good feelings naturally in the gym. You don't need drug or medication or an alcohol to get that same sort of feeling. Yeah. Once people start to realize that, again, even with your story, when you started so young, it's hard to understand that you can get these positive endorphins, these natural feelings from something that you control as opposed to something that is controlling you with this idea of, oh, I can't wait until I can go get this, that, or the other. 100%. It's a shift. We've got to change our view about it. And it's not about the quick fix. It's about building a strong foundation and learning the positive attributes of putting in the work and then the reward that you reap after that. As addicts and alcoholics, we're looking for the quick fix to make us feel better in that moment or not feel in that moment. And this teaches us to the real good feelings come from putting in the work and then the endorphins and then the results and you feel good about that. I also love that you live this. I mean, you've done 75 hard, you're very disciplined, you do CrossFit and you understand how important it is to have those bright lines because if you're not leading by example, then how in the world can you lead the team? How can you build what you have built? And tell us how big Elevate is. Tell us about part of that journey. And then we'll talk more about what led you to the path to start creating what you're working on today as your purpose. Oh, that's a lot. Okay. So um, (laughs) (laughs) we got plenty of time. Perfect. Well, I love how Jocko puts it. It's called leading from the front. And it's something that I always did just because I didn't want to be a hypocrite. And so it's about walking the walk of what you're preaching. And so that's like a big part of why Elevate is successful. And it's interesting because I used to think this was like working against us because people had said, you know, you have a bunch of former addicts running your center. What do you know? But it's actually our strength. This is where we excel over everybody else because our people got their training in addiction from having lived that life. Not that we're out there just, you know, hiring addicts off the street to come run our center, but this is a commonality that we all share. And so we can hold others way more accountable due to the fact that we've been there. We understand. We know how hard we can push and we know how we can hold people in the same accountability that we hold ourselves. And this is actually a superpower. So I would say out of right now, we're around 90 staff, 85 have been through recovery or been through some type of recovery, except for our like specialty positions. So we really understand. And the clients feel that too. They realize that the person talking to them is a peer. It's not somebody from a higher status with the lab coat who got all their schooling and degrees and they're going to tell them what their problem is. They realize, hey, this person was just like me. They're just providing tools and I'm going to figure out all the things that led me to where I'm at because nobody is the same. And like all good addicts and alcoholics, we don't want to be told what our problem is. We don't want to be evaluated. You know, don't tell me what my problem is, but we provide tools so you can figure it out yourself. That's it. You guys are just a mirror essentially, right? 100%. Yeah. You're not trying to sugarcoat any of it. And you also told me the employees that you have, you've got employees that have been with you for how long? So I've been here for 27 years, 25, 20, 22, my entire executive team of about 16 people. We've all been together for at least the lowest person being eight years. Most of them trending closer to the 20 years of being together. So it's not just, I think we added it up like 350 years of 
rehab IQ. It's also us all working together as a team and to find any team that's been together that long through everything that we've been through in the addiction field, in our rehab, in life. It's impossible. And because of that, again, there's that leading from the top. So people see that from down below, the new people signing on, the trainees, they're like, wow, I want what they have and I want to be part of this. And I think that that's a testament to your leadership. I think that's a testament to what you guys have done to the business, building not only a business plan that works. There are plenty of people that can build business plans, but we see they have a very almost transient revolving door. Somebody's there for three years max and then they kind of move off. So the people that are there, truly believe and elevate, but they believe in you. They believe in what you bring to the table and they see the results. They see, I don't know if a lot of people understand, there's a lot of rehabs that are out there that I think you said they were almost like glorified country club. Tell us kind of what that looks like and how that's not what you guys do. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, well, many years ago now, the industry got kind of corrupt because I think people realized there was a lot of money that could be made if you could work the insurance companies and that sort of thing. So there was the country club mentality, which basically you just show up, you get your medication, you sit around the pool, your 30 days is up. Maybe you find a sponsor, maybe you start to work some steps and then you leave. But you have somebody coming from the streets and they're in this like mansion and everything is taken care of them. They're not really in reality. Like when they leave there, they're not going to be in the same beautiful country club mansion. They're going back to the streets or the hotels or wherever it was that they came from. They just happen to have good insurance that could pay for that. So that was what was happening a while ago. Now what's being passed off is either that, and this is in part due to, unfortunately, the insurance companies running people's health care and how they, what they deem best for the individual. So if you come in, you've done your detox, you feel great. Insurance is like, awesome. They don't need to be there anymore. Drop their levels of care, send them on the way, give them a pill because that's easier. And that's what we're willing to pay for. And so that's what has become the standard in rehab is detox, release to outpatient, keep them on medication, and that appeases the insurance companies. And that sucks because that's not real rehab and that's not getting products. And so you guys don't do that, obviously. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like and all the things that you put into it? Because again, like you said, to set this person up to fail by putting them either in a mansion or give them just enough to actually face reality, which let's be real. That's why they are on this stuff in the first place, because they got slapped in the face of reality. And they said, I want to escape this at the moment. And all that does is breed recidivism. All that does is like you're setting them up to relapse. And for an addict who relapses, that next hit could be the last one they ever had because their body has detoxed. They're expecting a certain level of whatever this is. And now if they take that, that could be the last hit that they get. 100% because most of them hadn't done any work on the mental. So their body is cleaned up, but mentally they're exactly where they left off. And you're right. That's where we saw a huge increase in overdoses and suicides and that sort of stuff, partly due to the pandemic, but partly due to this is just what rehab is. And this is why a lot of people don't want to even go to rehab because they've had so many bad experiences where the rehabs just want to bring them in, do a quick fix, send them on the way, knowing that they got a repeat customer. You know, they don't want to fix them that well because they want them to come back. So there it is their desire that they go back out and use so that they come back in so that they have a repeat clientele. And unfortunately, again, the insurance company has set this up. Like say someone's in jail and they're like, I'm afraid to go out on my own. 
I don't want to do that. Can I come straight to your program? Sure. But if you're not testing positive for any drugs, insurance isn't going to pay for it. So it's almost like they're not there to work with the people that really want it. They only want to help the people that have the good insurance and are going to keep coming back. It's a terrible thing. So it's almost like they're replacing the addiction of the substance with the addiction of being in rehab. So this person is never off of that hedonistic treadmill of I'm chasing this thing, whatever it is. And now it's impossible for them to feel independent, impossible for them to feel empowered, impossible for them to feel anything than this stimulus, whatever it may be. A hundred percent. Well, and the other thing that's happening, and this is, again, I just can't even believe this passes as rehab is, let's say someone comes in on heroin or alcohol. They're on these street drugs. The rehabs will put them on five to seven different kinds of medications to handle the detox from that, but also to replace that addiction. And now they're being called sober, but they're on five to seven different kinds of medications. And, you know, it's one for your depression. It's one for you to go to sleep. It's one for you to get up in the morning. It's one for you to not overdose. So they put them on so many different kinds of pills and it's like, okay, I'm not drinking, but I'm so medicated. I can't even function. And yet you're calling me sober. And so that's also become the new recovery is just replacing whatever they're on with medications and calling people sober. And that's passing as rehab. There is no work being done. It's a battle of semantics at that point. It reminds me of veterans. I know men that have gone out into combat and if you're going into combat and you're tired or you're in pain and you're able to get like a pill that can help you overcome this anxiety or get through this injury just so you can survive this firefight, then you get back home. And they say, okay, you had this injury, we give you oxy or whatever it is. But once that prescription is done, we're not going to refill it because you should be off of it. And now, unintentionally, this person is addicted to a chemical. And then, like you said, in this case, it's almost the reverse. Instead of having like this pharmaceutical, they're going out to find something on the street like heroin or something that's similar structurally. But in the end, it's slowly killing them. And again, they were going to serve their country. They were going to do something for the right reasons. And all of a sudden they kept, they find themselves in this place and they're, it feels very dark. It feels like there's no way out for them. And especially for veterans, they're not going to admit that there's a problem. And I imagine a lot of addicts aren't going to admit that either because they're like, I can take care of this. I can quit whenever I want. And so you guys know that inside now because you, and all the people that are there have come from that. You said you started using when you were 11. Yeah. I, my mom had me very young and she worked two jobs to support us. So I also grew up in the generation, the latch is called the latchkey generation, which meant you had your key around your neck and you got yourself to school, you got yourself home, you fed yourself dinner. But that also afforded me a lot of freedom and living in a neighborhood of a lot of kids in the same exact situation where we had a lot of unsupervised time to get ourselves in trouble. And so, yeah, I started experimenting with drinking, with smoking, with smoking weed at a very young age. Once you start, I mean, that's so developmental. Once you start going down that path, it's very hard to reverse it. And that's what happened to me. I was in my first rehab at 16. And then you ended up in jail not long after that. Yeah, because I was not ready at 16. I just met new friends to party with. And I was like, oh, sweet. Thanks, mom. (laughs) (laughs) And I continued on that path. But when you're an adult, the consequences could be a whole lot harder than spending a few days in juvenile hall. And that's what ended up happening to me as I was definitely out being bad, hanging around people I shouldn't be around. And I got myself into a situation where I was facing 10 years in prison at 
21 years old of age. Was that enough to wake you up? No. No. I had a public defender who came to me and said, listen, Angie, here's what we're going to say. You have a drug problem and we're going to get you drug diversion instead of 10 years in prison. And I, being a good drug addict, said, I don't have a problem. I don't have a drug problem. What do you mean? And he's like, okay, let's just say you have a drug problem so that you don't have to go to prison. Can you agree to that? And I'm like, oh, I get it. We're just saying I have a problem. Yes, I can agree to that. And so, no, I was utterly in denial. Even the first year that I was in treatment, because that was my original sentence, a part of it was being in rehab for a year. There was a lot of denial that was going on there. I swore I was going to be an 80-year-old grandma smoking weed in my rocking chair. Like, I definitely fought it for a while. And it wasn't until a little bit later where it all started to click. And you said that it was because you had a judge that actually sympathized with you because he was going through the recovery process as well, correct? Yeah. I mean, he'd been sober for a really long time in the AANA world and I didn't know that. And he was also, because I've, I've since tried to track him down, but you know, they don't want to give you judges addresses or anything. Which <laughs> I, I don't understand why. Yeah. But I was like, oh, I get it. I just want to tell him thank you and look what you did. Yeah. No, it's, it's difficult to get that kind of information. In doing so, I read a bunch of articles and I realized in the year that I was sentenced was the year that he introduced drug diversion into the renal court system. So I may have been one of the very first people to actually get diversion of rehab as opposed to prison. And we know how that's gone. That's like the new, the new, not new. I mean, that was almost 30 years ago, but that is the norm of helping people not criminalize it and getting them treatment instead. And you said that when you were in that, and this is why you, your system works so well at Elevate, you understood that you didn't get better. You just got better at working the system. Right. (laughs) So what does that look like? Of working the system? And back then or now? Yes. (laughs) Yes to both. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, like I said, back then I was as a... I don't know, Marcus, what do you mean? Like, as an addict? (laughs) I think that's what it is, like you said, because you can see through when that addict is trying to work something or work you or give you this like subterfuge, this mirage, and you're like, okay, I'm calling bullshit on that. That's not it. That's not enough. That's not working. Yeah, you're right. A hundred percent. And and I definitely, like I said, I was in rehab for a year. That was my sentence was a year in rehab. And so I wasn't there by choice. So I definitely fought it and I tried to figure out ways to not really go deep or confront the issues or take accountability or responsibility I very much had grown up with counselors that allowed me to utilize the victim mentality of this was done to me. So this is why I'm this way. So don't hold me responsible for my actions because of this trauma. And so I really tried to use that as a means of not having to go deep and really take responsibility for what I had done. And maybe it was due to these things happening to me, but I still chose to do them. And until you take like full accountability and responsibility, the problem doesn't go away. And I don't think enough programs or people really want to hold people accountable because they'll get held up in the trauma as opposed to now, what did we do to deal with that trauma and the course that we put ourselves That's on. so true. And you and I have talked many times about this. To me, everybody's trying to buy the newest book, the newest program, the newest mastermind that will give them this three easy steps to whatever the hell it is you want. And they don't understand that even if those things work for these people that are teaching you, that was just because they did this fundamental work, got down to 
like their low point. And most people want to bypass that. They don't, they want to skip over the hardship. They don't understand that they have to face adversity to know who the hell they are in the first place. And until they know that, they can never plug in enough of the right equations or the newest book or the newest live event or whatever it is to fill that void because they have no clue where the hell they are. So what got you to get to that place where you finally took that responsibility, that, that ownership and said, hey, this is all me? Due to the rehabbing in the town that I had gotten in all my trouble, I was sort of weekend warring it under the radar and finally came back to the rehab and, and got myself in a little trouble and came on the radar. And the executive director finally gave me sort of an ultimatum, like you have two more years of probation and you can't come into my rehab drunk and threatening to beat up my staff. So what? That's, that's not, wow. What kind of crazy conservative place is that where they don't let you come in and verbally chastise and, and I know. Well, I mean, and in my defense, you know, he was going to wrap me out. So, of course, I was going to kick his butt. <laughs> so, but it, that's what it took. It took me being so obvious for somebody to say, stop. Like, you've got to stop. Like, I was self-sabotaging and it was a little and I was getting away with it. But you could tell I was starting to feel a little bad about it. And so then I was sabotaging a little more obviously until finally I was so overt about what I was doing that it literally took that. And then the executive director gave me that ultimatum, like you need to get 100% clean and honest with yourself and your intentions, or you can leave. And for me, I still had that 10 years hanging over my head. I still had two more years of probation. I still had $13,000 of restitution to pay. And I knew that my options we're not good. I would end up with that 10 year sentence if I left. And so that was really what I needed to really kick me in the butt and say, okay, let's do this. And that was also in conjunction with me working there. So I was starting to help people who were like me. I was starting to see the good feelings you get when you're doing something you love. And I actually love helping people. That's actually what I was born on this planet to do. I was always the person who when we're all drinking and partying, I was the person that was going to hold this person's hair so they didn't throw up in it. I even had this girl reach out to me. She was like, I remember when we were in Reno and we were in this big fight and these guys had bats and people were bleeding and you didn't care. You just ran over and you wanted to help me. You didn't care what was going on. Your intention was to help me. And that was really helpful for me because I realized actually I always have been that person. So it, it was finding my purpose, but it was just aligning with what I was put on this earth to do and realizing that nothing was worth giving that up for. And that's what's so powerful. Everybody says, find your why, but that's bullshit. You have to find out who the hell you are. With that self-knowledge, you can start figuring out what's important to you. And so you've literally built this upon that. And I love that because in the fake social media world today, there's so many people that can buy a great account or account manager and make all this content that gives the appearance of doing these things. But yet you've got the experience, not only in the subject matter, but then in the professional component, understanding it inside and out, seeing it inside and out. I'm sure that you've seen, learned and forgotten more about the entire system than other people even understand now because what's going on when you were first addicted, while it may be the same problem, all the semantics, the things that happen in between there change. So you have a finger on the pulse of it. You understand it. You can anticipate it. You see it coming beforehand. And that gives you a tremendous amount of not only respect in the industry, but that's what helps you cut through all the bullshit and help that person and say, listen, 
we can dance around this all you want, but until you get to here, until you take accountability and responsibility, nobody else can do this work for you. And you guys are there to kick them in the ass a little bit, but also pat them on the back when they're doing the right thing to help them understand that this is a long process. Like you mentioned before, addicts like the, the quick fix. In the military, they said there's two ways to do anything correctly and again. So if we're trying to take the shortcut, which is this quote-unquote fake rehab for a few days and then they're released to their own recognizance again, that's just building in the ability that they're going to fall back into it. So that's why what you guys do is so tremendous. And if you're listening and you hear what we're talking about, if you know somebody, if you have a friend, if you need help, reach out to these people. When people come in, are they sort of on their last legs? What sort of people, what's the mindset when they come to you guys? All different mindsets. You have the people that are young, that were young like me, that are there because their family is pushing them there and giving them no other options. You have the people who are in their 40s and 50s and their families are fed up, or maybe they've lost their job, or maybe they're going to lose their house. And then we even have the older people like that who are like, okay, I'm 70 years old. Am I going to live out my final years this way? So we have the entire gamut of addicts, alcoholics in different stages of wanting to get better and not wanting to get better. And that's partly too why we have like a longer program because first you have to, and this is a big thing, take them off everything, which is what we do, which no other program does. And we do that before they even leave the detox part of the program. We do it safely. It's under medical supervision. But what we figured out is by keeping them separated from being able to even start their program until they're done detoxing, People suddenly don't need this long, drawn out, like, I'm going to just slowly come down my whole program. They're like, okay, take me off. I'm fine. Let's go do this. You throw them in the gym. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> they go in Here's on their the own volition, but, but then they do their whole program sober. So now we're building a foundation of 30 to 60 plus days where they're finding themselves and they're learning about themselves. And it's a copyrighted curriculum because like you said, there's no short circuiting it. Like you have to go through all the different steps before you can get to the end. So you can try to talk a good game, but it's not going to get you away from going through what you need to go through until you get there. And then there's many times people are like, feel so good. They're like, okay, good. I'm done. I can leave now. Oh, good. I feel better now. It's, it's time. And it's like, no, there's still a lot more to get. And so that is the beauty of the way we run our program is there is a start, there is an end, and there's a lot to do in between before you're considered. Ready. That's what makes this so important. Like you said, it's not just some arbitrary emotion that they feel at that time because they want to get out. And again, doing all this when they're clean, they truly see what's going on as opposed to it being this foggy thing. And you're trying to plug in these tools for them or give them a routine that, let's face it, they may or may not even remember when they get out. Right. Well, and that's that's where we're at as society is all day you're bombarded with messages on the TV telling you if you don't like the way you feel, take something, take something, take something. And we're here to say, no, feel. Feeling is okay. Feeling tells you there's something going on. Feeling is appropriate for the situation. Like it's okay to feel. And let's practice feeling in the safe and supportive environment. Because when you would leave here, it's not like the, the sun comes out and everything's magical and unicorns are everywhere and everything goes perfect because it's not life. But we steal them up to be able to handle that without needing to use drugs or alcohol in order to confront whatever life is going to hit them. Yeah, everybody wants to avoid the emotion. They don't understand that the emotion, if you ignore it, it's just going to keep coming back bigger and bigger until you take a look at what the hell is going on. And if you've got alcohol or drugs involved with it, it's going to stop you from seeing that. And some people don't see that again until they're in jail or until they're injured or violent. 
That was part one of my interview with Angie Manson, CEO of Elevated Addiction Services and health and fitness expert. You can hear part two of our interview on the next episode of Octonomaraba, where Angie returns to explore the rehabilitation process and how individual support is critical for success. Angie discusses the adversity of living with the label of addiction, even in recovery, maintaining communication with your support system, and how to stop limiting your beliefs based on your past mistakes. Until next time, live a life of actions and not words. Live a life of Octa Nonverba. Thank you for listening to this episode of Octa Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.